0: Most of us find the healthcare system totally confusing. We know miracles can happen, but we find ourselves bombarded by conflicting information and are uncertain of what and whom we can trust in getting better healthcare. Dr. Steve Feldman and his expert guests walk us through the labyrinth, helping us understand how to take charge of our own and our family's health care and what needs to be done for a healthier medical system. It's time to
1: find out what to do. Now, here's Steve. Welcome to Getting Better Healthcare. I'm Steve Feldman. Thanks for joining us today. Our guest today is Barry Gennetti. He's president of the GMR Group. His company does strategy and planning work with pharmaceutical companies for managed care issues. Barry's been in the pharmaceutical um, business for 20 years, and uh, I've invited him to join us today to discuss the relationship of pharmaceutical companies and insurers and patients, and um, where their goals are similar, where they diverge, and how this system all works. Barry, thank you for joining us today.
0: Thank you for having me, Steve. Look forward to this.
1: Well, um, I want to start off by understanding the very basics of insurance paying for drugs. So we, we, we have insurance and then the insurance companies have pharmacy benefits. They pay for our drugs for us. Uh, Tell me a little bit about the structure of how this is all organized.
0: Okay, uh, Steve, it's pretty simple. Uh, Insurance companies or health plans uh, develop a a benefit design to cover the health care needs of somebody who is going to purchase that product. And they divide it up into medical, hospital, and diagnostic testing on one side, and then they have the issue we're talking about is a pharmacy benefit. The pharmacy benefit is to correspond with being able to provide the necessary medications that would support the overall care and management of a patient, uh, and it must uh, be a comprehensive list of products uh, that could fill all the appropriate clinical needs. Uh, we find out that insurers... Uh, that would have this type of benefit can do a one of two things. They can have their own internal pharmacy uh, department that would do the evaluations and recommendations uh, to their pharmacy and therapeutics committee for decisions on whether a drug should be appropriately covered or not covered as part of the benefit. So they can do that internally or there is another option where if they want to outsource that uh, particular service, they go to what is called a pharmacy benefit management organization uh, who provides all those services for them. They do the evaluations. Uh, they make the recommendations. The uh, individual insurer who would use that service, uh, they would make the final decision on whether they are going to cover it based on those recommendations. Then the the final part in the process is uh, when this formulary, what is called a formulary, all the drugs that are available to an individual through their insurance, they put it on what is called a formulary. Uh, uh, when individuals get their prescriptions, the prescription goes through a claims process and therefore uh, it is paid for at the pharmacy and then reimbursed by the health insurance plan as it closes a loop on, on all those expenses. That's the general sense of uh, the benefit.
1: It sounds like a lot goes into this. I, I had the opportunity to talk to uh, the managers, the pharmacists who were involved in formulary decisions concerning psoriasis, and they seemed to be deeply interested in what treatments were good, um, what would be cost-effective. In, in They were interested in making sure that patients had access to things that they really needed, that they wouldn't be treated with things that were inappropriately risky. I hear, you know, when in the context of healthcare reform and, and maybe Michael Moore, that, gosh, these insurance companies are evil, all they care about is the money. That certainly isn't the impression I got from speaking to pharmacy benefit managers. What's your take on it?
0: Well, you know, it's a pretty tough job that they have. These, uh, the individuals that are the pharmacy managers – uh, in in that department or the organization that does that, uh, these are trained professionals. They are pharmacists, uh, pharmd's uh, that are well schooled, uh, and their primary job is to uh, evaluate and assess therapies for the efficacy they can provide, and then the the safety too. In the same regard, they're they're looking there. That is their principal first two concerns. But on the other hand, since they are part of a business. Uh, There are cost considerations that weigh in. But uh, I have found, in my experience, that is a separate process in the organization. Everybody knows uh, that cost is going to be a factor, but the first thing they do is do a good, honest, uh, uh, robust examination of what information studies, data is available about a product. Uh, They examine that literature uh, that is gone. They will ask, for example, I know you... Uh, being a dermatologist, they may consult with you on a specialty product where they would like to get the uh, uh, feedback from somebody who sees these type of conditions on a more ongoing basis. Uh, So, you know, you do hear the extremes, the Michael Moores of the world trying to claim that insurance companies are in it just for the money and the buck and you're getting substandard care and they're denying products. Uh, But it's... Uh, a fairly, I think you said it already. a Complex uh, process on how they go about this. Bring it up uh, on an evaluation to physicians that are in the community. Part of the committee that will approve uh, saying we should we should include this drug as part of the benefit are the community physicians that are asked to participate in that. Well, Answer that decision. Yeah,
1: yeah. I, I, you raise a really good point. My experience now, I'm sure there's so much variability between insurers and how they do things, but my experience has been that there are sort of academically oriented pharmacists when these new drugs come out who research everything known about these drugs, all the published studies, they look carefully, most especially at randomized controlled data. They produce voluminous reports, and then those are evaluated by a committee of physicians who include experts in the disease area relevant to that drug and so that there's multiple levels of assessment being going go, going on in order to choose or to determine what drugs are clinically best which ones are clinically needed and then maybe like you say it cost gets handled at some other point in the process
0: Yeah after that decision is made then there's a determination saying uh, how much of an advance is this drug over existing products? Uh, is it relatively similar, even though it may be slightly different chemically? Uh, is is there some advantage that other products don't provide? If it if it generally uh, has the 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 smell of something that's very similar, uh, w- which is referred to in the industry as more of a me too product, a follow on product that brings marginal value there will be a, 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 a press by the contracting component at these organizations to try and drive the price down. Uh, on the other hand, uh, drugs that do bring some value over and above existing therapies, either in better efficacy, better tolerance, better even quality of life in the results they can produce, uh, sure, they would like to get a better price, but they, they can't deny that because their, their goal is to provide good, uh, health care for for their members
1: so their goal is to provide good health care and i get the sense that it's also to provide good health care at a good value now exactly they, they when you have a large insurance company it seems like you have the potential for volume buying and for negotiating a really good price and i imagine that must happen too
0: it certainly does. Uh, when you look at some health plans that have uh, insurance companies that may have uh, 8 million, 10 million uh, members' lives that they uh, provide insurance for, they definitely uh, can go in and uh, demand or attempt to demand a better price than maybe a smaller regional plan that maybe only services a couple hundred thousand uh, people that they insure.
1: I've heard, for example, that the the Veterans Administration, the VA, it's such an enormous system. Boy, if you're a drug company and you get your drug with them, you're going to sell a lot of products so that you might be willing to offer them a really reasonable price for it.
0: Uh, True. There's two things going there. First of all, it's the government, and there are uh, policies that are already there that uh, require a minimal discount by anybody doing business with the federal government. So uh, a pharmaceutical manufacturer, just to be able to get to the playing field with uh, the VA system or the military, uh, is required to have a certain discount. Uh, If they want to be a more preferred product, uh, meaning less restrictions on your product, uh, preference over other brands, yes, you would would need to apply a, a larger discount, but then in the reward is a, a much larger population of people that are covered by military and VA.
1: You're listening to Getting Better Healthcare with Steve Feldman. Today we're talking to Barry Gianetti. I'm sorry, it's Barry Gianetti of the GMR Group. Um, Barry, you mentioned um, preferred positioning, and, and I think this is a really good issue to describe when the insurance company. Uh, says, okay, our pharmacists have determined that this drug is better or we're getting a better price on this drug, they don't necessarily say we're not going to cover this other drug. They may put incentives on the patient that affect what the patient chooses. you want to talk more about that that tiered system and how it works?
0: Yeah, it's referred to on the industry side as what they call the actual uh, design, the benefit design and, uh, they will have, a, a, a tiered approach to covering of drugs. Uh, most commonly, uh, in our healthcare system today is what is called a three-tier pharmacy benefit. Meaning the drugs that are covered on the pharmacy benefit will fall into one of three tiers. Tier one, tier two, tier three. Uh, customarily, tier one is your generic level of product, uh, in that tier. Uh, they are products that uh, now have the patent fired. There are multiple suppliers of that drug, and they cost considerably less than the original brand manufacturers. So uh, health plans, they're still good drugs. There's nothing wrong with them. Uh, and because they cost less, they will go into that tier uh, position on the formulary and will uh, cost the patient or member who would get one of those prescribed a, a smaller copay. Uh Usually the average is about $10 in the United States, but if individuals look around, they can go to the Walmarts and some of the other large box stores and find that some of those generics can even be purchased for a lesser amount. When we move up the ladder into Tier 2, uh, these are products that are typically brand products that the uh, health plan insurer has, has declared based on their evaluation to be their preferred product. Now it can be a preferred product on a couple of bases. One, it can be a really super product. It is a more, uh, effective product. It is a safer product than other therapies. Uh, or, uh, if it's in a class where there are multiple products that all provide a very good profile, but seem to be that me too that I referred to before, there could be contracting that could be, uh, associated with it receiving a position in the tier two. Again, uh, it pay, you pay more as a, as a, a patient when you get a drug that's in a tier two, uh, but, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, the health plan providing you with the best product at that particular, uh, indication, whatever your condition is. The tier three is what people refer to as non-formulary or non-preferred products, uh, that's why there's people that go out and say, oh, they deny coverage of drugs. They try to limit it. Uh, a three-tier plan, for the most part, is very open, and they will put pro- all products, eventually will fall into the third tier, of course, at a higher copay. And these drugs uh, show don't show significant advantage over the generics in Tier 1 or the preferred in Tier 2. So they say if a patient wants them, they're available, but we don't get any special pricing on them, uh, they we don't think there's a better advantage we think you can do just as well with a tier 1 or a tier 2 drug so we'll give it let you have them but you will pay a higher copay that's the basic design i hope i explained that for everyone
1: yeah i think that's very clear so three levels the inexpensive generics the second level um, preferred drugs drugs that may be really terrific drugs and are worth the money somehow or drugs that there's several in the class but because the insurance company is getting them at a particularly good price through contracting um, for with that particular insurer, they they put it on level two. And then tier three, things that are either not better and cost more, and if the patient wants them, they can have them, but it's going to cost them more. I guess sometimes there's a fourth tier? Uh,
0: there is a fourth tier uh, that we've seen come up over the last few years as as there's been some really great advances in development of drugs. Uh, it's called a specialty tier. And we've seen this in some of the uh, rare uh, type diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, uh, where they've developed some really fabulous uh, drugs. Uh, example as a name would be an Enbrel or a Humira. Uh And they will go into the specialty tier. Uh, there is a, They are very, very expensive uh, type products, they are wonderful in what they do. Uh, but being in the specialty tier, they require a different level of management as far as the way the uh, uh, product must be handled in distribution. Also, they typically are injectable type products. And yes, uh, being in the uh, specialty tier will require uh, a slightly higher copay than uh, the other products in tier one, tier 2, or tier three. But these are drugs that may cost uh, somebody if they had to pay for them cash, uh, maybe, $1,500, $2,000, or more dollars a month. So uh, uh, the copay is really uh, uh, insignificant relative to the full price of the drug.
1: One of the things that we haven't yet discussed is prior authorization and how that fits into the pharmacy benefits.
0: Yeah. In addition to having what we just described as the three tiers or and the fourth tier being a specialty tier, there are some other management techniques that are used by these pharmacy managers. Uh, one of them is a prior authorization. Uh, this is usually relegated to products uh, that could have potentially multiple indications and uh, uses outside of uh, its primary use, or that it's a drug that the health plan feels should be more handled or prescribed by a specialist who is made... Uh, done more testing with the individual and would be uh, more trained in recognizing the need for that product. So it's a prior authorization. It doesn't deny the drug. It just puts an extra step that the prescribing physician must complete, and then the patient will get their drug. However, they could have a uh, a prior authorization on a Tier 2 drug, or they could have it on a Tier 3 drug. Another more common way that they try and get people to adhere To the benefit of the design, both from the insurer's perspective on getting the most cost-effective medication, and also from the patient uh, getting the right drug at the right out-of-pocket cost for them is called a step edit. And a step edit is a very simple process when you go uh, to the pharmacy with a prescription for a brand name, and there is a generic available the step edit it will tell the pharmacist who's getting the prescription ready for dispensing that the patient should have been on another a generic version of that before they got this product because the generic would be uh, equivalent in efficacy and safety at a much better price. So it would say, if you haven't been on this drug, the, the, your doctor should prescribe this one first. If that one doesn't work, then you can move to the next one. So that's a tool that's been used. It's a fairly simple thing, mainly because of technology, uh, being able to interject during the processing of a prescription, uh, putting in a message to ensure that the patient has had that other drug. They can also step at it preferred product. They can say, we would like this brand X to be used before you go to the other brands because we, this is the, this is our preferred product. So there is a, an opportunity for them to try and hear towards the uh, better products and the more cost-effective products.
1: You know, the term prior authorization, I think, oh, makes shivers run up and down the spine of, of doctors because it, when we prescribe something, generally speaking, we know what we want the patient to have and we, we're pretty sure it's the right thing and that's why we wrote the prescription we don't want somebody second-guessing us and the... The prior authorization to us just seems like useless hassle. But having worked with people on the pharmacy benefits side, I see where they want to assure safety. Certainly, they want to assure cost effectiveness. And I can see why they put into place prior authorization. The step at it seems like a very nice. Uh, compromise, if if you would. It takes away a lot of the hassle, and it just makes it a very simple Check off that these things have been done. Um, You mentioned Embrel. You know, one of the step edits might be, have you had your tuberculosis test? Um, This isn't a cost issue for the insurer. They want to make sure people are safe. You really should be tested for TB before you start some of these new um, anti-inflammatory medications. Having that be part of the step edit process seems to me... A little bit of a hassle, but they're perhaps a reasonable one.
0: Yeah, it sort of makes the whole system have some checks and balances. The step-edit also can be done uh, uh, to make sure that the proper dose is given uh, by the physician uh, because you know they will look and say in the literature that a person should have maybe uh, the dosage should be one tablet a day, and the physician may have written it one tablet twice a day. So the step-edit would come in and say, uh, unless there's a better cause, You're only going to get one tablet a day.
1: That makes sense.
0: That's based on review. So it's another little safety check uh, to make sure. But it, it can be overridden very simply. If the physician says no, the patient really needs to double up on the dose.
1: Now, as a dermatologist, I see people with acne. It's a pretty common problem. Uh, one of our medications can also be that, that we use for acne can also be used for people with wrinkles. And I'm sure that the insurance companies are like, look, acne is a disease. We'll we'll pay for it for the acne. We don't want to pay for it for the wrinkles. Now, they can put in a step edit that says, OK, well, if you're over a certain age, we're not going to pay for it because above that age, we assume that you're treating wrinkles and not acne. Have you ever seen situations like that?
0: Very much so, Steve. Uh, a couple of my clients uh, we've worked with uh, have dermatologic products, and we've done a study of formularies. And particularly in that area, uh, there there have been uh, edits uh, on patients or actually a, a prior authorization may go into effect to prevent use of this for what they consider a non-clinical condition. Uh, that's, the insurance company is providing health care for what are medical uh, uh liabilities uh, they they aren't into the health and of uh, the, the beauty part of health so wrinkles uh, is not a condition that is life threatening yes it will vain in, in such a way but that's not part of their uh coverage requirement so a cosmetic uh, effect is something that they would not want to uh, pay for so they would use yes a step edit and most commonly it, it would go with uh by age figuring that Uh, the higher percentage of people with acne are in their younger ages. Now, you know there are some older folks that may have acne. There may be some women in their 40s that have acne. The system will allow that person uh, to do it. Again, the physician would have to come in and justify through a medical necessity that, you know, this is really not wrinkles. I'm treating a patient with a certain, you know, Skin condition, acne,
1: and requires this. I want to come back to that appeal point in just a minute. Just finish up with the with one aspect of this using age, say, to determine uh, where that line should be. Years ago, as I understand it, insurers set this line for where they would pay for the the topical retinoids that are used for these are vitamin A related drugs that are used for acne and they would they would say okay well 21 years old you know teenagers get acne older people don't well people in their 20s get acne people in their 30s get acne people in their 40s get acne and and the line they drew was way too low it didn't take a lot of work to put together some some objective data showing when people have acne how common it was in the 20s and 30s and getting insurers to change where they draw that line. I've had the sense that when they make policy decisions they're very data-driven and very reasonable people more often than not.
0: Uh, Absolutely, Uh, and and you said it, they are data-driven. If you can come in and show to them uh, evidence that something needs to be changed. I can give you an example on a project we worked in with migraine, uh, the migraine uh, drugs that are out there. when they came out, it was a new revolution. There weren't any products of this nature uh, for treating migraine. Uh, but these were very expensive products, very, very costly. And the health plan said, my God, we normally provide for a month's supply of uh, medication at a time. That's what the normal benefit design says, that we will uh, give you prescriptions one month at a time unless you buy it by mail order. Then we'll give you it three months at a time. Well, they're saying, these drugs, a month's supply of these drugs, if we were to give them 30 days' worth of these tablets, it was a phenomenal amount of money versus the average cost of a brand prescription. So they said, somewhere along the way, somebody says, "Well, you know, people that have migraines only have a migraine maybe three or four times uh, a month. And they said, three or four times a month, how long does it last? Two or three days. So they said, oh, we'll, we'll limit a month's supply to 12 tablets. Well, this was a real difficult situation for the doctor, for the patient, but it solved an issue uh, at that time of uh, putting, giving people prescriptions for these, uh, a full 30-day supply, which might be uh, 90 or 100 of these tablets at $10 apiece, for example, uh, or more, uh, into giving them this. But what found out of, over time is that people started to hoard their medication knowing they only had 12 tablets. They waited till their migraine was more severely developed before they would take their thing because they were, take their medication because they were afraid they were going to run out of medication before the next uh, prescription would be able to be refilled. Well, evidence came in by thought leaders in the field of neurology that says this is a bad thing to happen. These tablets need to be taken immediately when they sense a migraine coming on because they don't work once the migraine is full bloom on them as they refer to it. And therefore, it would be uh, inappropriate uh, to to block them. So what happened is uh, this evidence was presented by these leading authorities, and health plans started to remove the restriction on the number of tablets and and allowed for a larger quantity uh, based on that evidence.
1: I get, I hear in what you're saying, a more general phenomenon that when these New revolutionary drugs come out. there's a learning curve, and it may take a little while before they figure out the sweet spot of how these things should be used and how many pills are needed and the initial The initial coverage decisions may not be the ideal one, but that these folks really do try, and eventually they get it right
0: yeah and and they 're in a hard spot because uh one of the things that uh, that we note and I think the manufacturers understand now is. The, when they develop products, uh, there is a certain, uh, criteria protocol they follow with the government on developing products to come out with efficacy and safety. What has been missing over time is comparative effectiveness. And I think one of the changes we will see with healthcare reform is a movement of uh, pharmaceutical development where they will do more comparison of their newer drugs to existing standards of care so that there is a greater understanding of the value of that drug when it comes to the market. As it is now, the drug has only been compared to placebo, and placebos are a non-entity. They are not a drug. They are just taking a sugar pill. Uh, and therefore, when you're done, you know your drug works because it's being given to people with a certain condition, but you don't know how different it is from other drugs, meaning being compared to in the same kind of patient. Uh, so I, I see that change being needed. It will help facilitate the jobs of these pharmacy managers in being able to make an earlier, better determination of the usefulness of, of drugs.
1: What you're describing, uh, using cost-effectiveness and comparative cost-effectiveness data to plan your formulary, I think the Europeans are way ahead of us and already doing that
0: yeah they are a little more rigorous in the way they review their drug system uh There are things i I don't like the, the in the way they take away some of the business uh uh entrepreneurialism and everything else over there. but their system in review i think uh is is something that we are lagging behind in, but I see it being adopted now by some of the more progressive uh health systems uh health insurers that we have in the United States.
1: Well, you're listening to Getting Better Healthcare with Steve Feldman. Our guest today, Barry Gennetti, president of the GMR Group. Barry works with strategy and planning uh, with pharmaceutical companies on managed care programs, working with insurers. Now, um, we've talked about a number of programs that insurers can put into place to to assure safety, to assure cost-effectiveness. Sometimes those programs result in denials. You mentioned that people can appeal.
0: Steve, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, when a new product comes out, uh, a health plan does not uh, ensure, does not necessarily have to cover that product until they've gone through the review process that we've discussed. Uh, in some cases, they may put it on with uh, meaning- uh, it'll be approved by a prior office or by a uh, special request from the physician until they have it reviewed. So they don't want it openly, just uh, freely used by the entire medical community. They want to make sure they do their due diligence in the review. There are times where they may uh, deny a product uh, will come out, and the system allows, it's built into the system, uh, one, that a physician can appeal under medical necessity, that, look, I have tried product X, Y, and Z, and I'm not getting results. I need to try this product. And uh, that will go uh, up into the medical department at the uh, uh, health plan the insurer, and they will make a determination. And with that type of uh, uh, influence from the doctor, meaning substantiation is probably a better word, uh, they are likely to be approved and the drug will be covered. Uh, also, uh, the last ditch resort always, whether it be with a drug or it be with, uh, any of your medical, uh, condition services that you may have, you can always appeal as an individual that you should have had coverage for a certain event or a product that, that was denied to you.
1: Barry, sometimes that adage about, uh, leading, well, you, you, what is it, you can catch more bees with with honey or something like that. I wonder to what extent when you're writing this appeal letter to appeal to folks, better nature, as opposed to, you know, shouting out that they just care about the money. Do you think that makes a difference in the ultimate outcomes of some of these decisions?
0: Uh, you know, on the surface, if, if you just had a letter campaign that a lot of people wanted this product uh just because it was in vogue they had heard about it and they wanted it uh and that was their rationale uh i think you would find that uh, they would be rejected however uh if if there is true need for that product because of uh ill effects from other therapies the person couldn't tolerate the drug they didn't get the necessary or adequate response uh look uh they're human beings over there uh, and and also they understand uh, people and, and, and suffering with some of these health conditions. And you're likely then to have it approved more often than not.
1: I think you're absolutely right about that. The, the doctor, the MD, who's the medical director who's, who's, who you're sending this letter to, they went to medical school sitting right next to the MD doctor who's taking care of the patient. And I don't think that they're their ultimate goals are all that divergent. I think those medical directors go home at night thinking, you know, I help patients get great medical care today. And if you show them data, if you explain this the specific situation, why the lower tier drugs didn't work or why the patient can't take them because of their liver disease or whatever, that they're very reasonable and understanding.
0: Absolutely. Uh and you know and granted uh, there there are indications where there are sometimes they make it more difficult to get to some drugs that we think are very glamorous and and that are very expensive but again we have demonstrated I think tonight in our discussion that there is a very thorough rigorous process on evaluating products and uh, they they are saying that there are adequate products before you maybe get to this new super wonder drug that has come with a lot of marketing and uh, panache with it uh and uh they would prefer to see you use those other drugs as a benefit to the overall healthcare system in keeping costs down but on the other hand there gets to be a point where uh if if you've gone through those drugs and don't get a response uh they're not going to deny you uh, it's just a, a simple thing so there is it that is one of the Challenges of being uh, managing a pharmacy benefit is the true clinical uh, approach to looking at the data and the information, and then the business side of saying, "Well, what is the best cost uh, uh, value for the product that we are dealing with?"
1: I want to come back now to something that we that you alluded to at the very beginning: the insurance plan has a medical benefit, they have a, pharma, a pharmaceutical benefit, they may have a durable medical equipment benefit, and each of these benefits are probably managed somewhat independently. So if you have a drug that works great, um, but it um, it, reduced, it may be expensive, but it reduces the number of hospitalizations It's not clear to the pharmacy benefit people, perhaps, what's happening on the medical benefit side, and and, and something may be lost there. Have you you seen examples of that?
0: Uh, That is a good point. Uh, We hear that story a lot. We have uh, clients of ourselves from the pharmaceutical side that will come in and show that that there is an opportunity to reduce maybe hospitalizations, uh, visits to the emergency room. Reductions in surgery. I remember way back uh, when Tagamet first was introduced, it revolutionized uh, the the uh, work with people with GI ulcers. Uh, which essentially prior to that, if uh, they didn't get results with a Maalox type product, which was very difficult for people to consume if they had a real ulcer, uh, they were getting surgery. And the Tagamet of the world, and the world, and then the Zantac follow-ons really reduced the need for hospitalizations and surgical procedures, and there was wide acceptance of that therapy. Uh, As we look now, you brought it out, we, we look at health insurers and managing their different parts of their operation, and true, pharmacy tends to sit in a silo, and then you have all of the medical components, but within medical you may have a DME and you may have a hospital group and you may have your provider network. Uh, and if they are managing in those silos, every person that's the uh, head manager for that group, the director, the vice president, is worried about their budget. So a pharmacy uh, director is saying, 100% of my, my expenses are drugs. So, you know, this new drug that comes in is going to cost me twice as much as other products. Yes, it's a really good drug, but I don't get the benefit of the reduction in uh, emergency room visits, maybe with asthmatics or, again, with ulcer patients uh, getting this, I don't get that benefit. What we're seeing is uh, there is a better integration of data across these different silos. They are looking at it, but part of the burden has to be on the manufacturer to be able to demonstrate that. As as we've been saying all along, the evidence or data that they that they have to evaluate is really what is going to be critical to the decision process.
1: Okay, well... I'm glad to hear that that integration is happening because I've seen the other thing happen where the durable medical equipment um, budget won't pay for, say, phototherapy equipment that is really fairly reasonably priced but would save a lot of money in the pharmacy budget um, avoiding, say, some of these new high-cost medications. Yeah, you
0: know, we've crossed paths before uh, as as we've worked at some programs where we have tried to bring uh, some additional uh, education about specific areas in this case in dermatology and it, it seems to be a policy that has come up and it may be one of those things where the policy was made where there was uh, not sufficient uh, evidence or somebody to support that value and it's it's sitting there uh, gathering dust but that's the policy and those are those individually have to be addressed. Uh, uh with insurer to insure uh and and bring to light the the value of in your case those phototherapy devices over maybe some of the more expensive uh drugs uh, that could cost one month's uh prescription could be more than the cost of the whole uh phototherapy product
1: very. Thank you so much for being here today. We're at the very end of our show. It, usually at this point we like to invite our guests to share any specific thoughts they have for our listeners about how to have a better health or how to get better health care. Do you have any specific suggestions related to insurance, drug benefits, things like that, that our listeners should know?
0: Well, you know, off the top of my head, I, I think the individual is really the one that makes. It needs to take control of their health care. Uh, and today, in today's world with technology available, computers, the internet, uh, I think it really behooves all of us, uh, to really follow our health. I mean, it's the thing that's going to drive us, uh, as we age and mm-hmm. the quality of, uh, of our life as we get older. So they should be looking, uh, at the information that's out there. There's a vast amounts. All of the insurers, uh, that I know, the major insurers do have Uh, internet sites uh, where they can provide additional information. Also, some of the health plans uh, have access to health coaches now, which are trained professionals, typically nurses, uh, who can be uh, contacted. And you don't have to have a condition or you may have a condition, and they can provide you extra guidance and information. They aren't necessarily going to treat you, but they can steer you to the right areas. So, Using the Internet, and if if your health plan has, like, health coaches available, I, you know, think that that's a very good start for everybody to maintain a good, healthy lifestyle.
1: Great suggestion. Thank you so much for being my guest today. Uh, I appreciate it.
0: Okay, Steve, thank you for having me. Take, I enjoyed it.
1: Likewise. Take care. Well, Barry makes a great point when he tells us we need to take more personal responsibility for our health care and our medications. If we haven't done it already, we should probably have a list of all the medications we're on that we can take to our doctors. We should probably also have on hand a list of medications we've used in the past and any problems we might have had with them or any reason why we stopped them. Those sorts of things probably make it easier for our doctors to help give us the best possible medical care. Well that's our show for today. I hope you've enjoyed Getting Better Healthcare. I'm Steve Feldman, and I hope you'll join us again next time. Thank you for joining us today for Getting Better Health
0: Care. For more information about Dr. Feldman and about healthcare, please visit DrScore.com. That's D-R-S-C-O-R-E.com. And we'll see you back here next week.